0: Hey guys, welcome to the Brussels to Berlin podcast. A take on EU politics from two Americans on either side of the Rhine. I'm Dave Keating, I'm a journalist based in Brussels.
1: And I'm Tyson Barker, I'm a political analyst based in Berlin.
0: And we are coming at you from these two EU capitals. Uh, to talk about uh, two issues that are big in, in either of our cities Brexit here in Brussels and the German coalition formation, which it now feels like we've been talking about forever a couple of years. Yeah.
1: These, these are, uh, it's interesting. Every time we do our podcast, it seems like it's the same two topics. <laughs>
0: exactly. It's these two never ending things. But of course, the German coalition building is likely to end. Earlier than Brexit chaos, much, much earlier. But who yeah, knows? I don't know. Well, yeah, we'll yeah, see. Who knows. <laughs> anyway, so all that and more coming up on this month's Brussels to Berlin podcast. Okay, so let's start off with Brexit. What's the latest? So uh, we had uh, last week. The other 27 EU member states agreed to the UK's request for a transition period after the uh, formal Brexit. So that Brexit has to happen under Article 50 in March 2019. Uh, The UK, seeing that a post-Brexit trade deal uh, is very unlikely to be agreed before then, has asked for a transition period. The EU27, the other 27 states, said, OK, we'll give you that. Um, they have agreed to give them a transition period until December 31st, 2020. So that's a little over a year and a half from when Brexit formally takes place. But they did so with uh, some very, very significant Caveats. They actually took quite a a hard line. Um, The UK will technically leave the EU in March 2019, but then it will be kind of a guest member. So during this transition period. Yeah, exactly. It won't be a full member, but it will still have to follow the rules, basically. So during that transition period, the UK has to abide by all EU law. Kind of incredibly, they will also have to abide by EU laws that are decided after Brexit, so during that year and a half transition period, and they will have no vote in the process. So they will not be able to exercise their EU voting power during this transition period.
1: So, Um, so can I ask you one question on that? I mean, it seems to me, just looking from the outside, is that uh, a lot of decisions, the hard decisions are being pushed to that transition period is that the feeling right now yeah very much you know
0: it looks like people are
1: just white basically white knuckling it until uh March
0: 2019? Yeah, this this is not a transition period in actuality. This is an extension of time. So, you know, the idea originally when this idea was first put forward by the UK was that this would be a two-year period for businesses to adjust to the new reality, um, adopt their business plan, so that there wouldn't be a sudden cliff edge. But the idea wasn't that the transition period was supposed to be used for extra negotiating time. By this mm-hmm. point, it's clear that it will have to be used used for extra negotiating time, because there's no way we're going to have a a post-Brexit deal in place by then. So really, it's just an extra two years. Um, But the EU... Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, to state the obvious, it seems that um, the UK is essentially um, uh, losing leverage, because it won't be an official member of the EU... But extending the negotiations.
0: Yeah, it's it's an objectively horrible deal for the UK because they will be completely powerless to shape EU law, uh, but still have to follow it. I mean, if in April twenty nineteen the EU twenty seven decided they wanted to adopt a financial transaction tax that was um, very bad for the city in London. The U.K. would have to, would not be able to block it, which ordinarily you can wield a veto on anything tax-related. Uh, it would not be able to veto it. It would have to follow it for a year and a half. Um, the one thing that the U.K. did get from the EU-27 is they had said that they want to start negotiating free trade deals with third countries like the U.S., Japan, China. And the EU-27 said, okay, you can do that during the transition period from March 2019. You can start negotiating, um, but you can't sign anything. So no free trade deal with any third country can take effect or even be signed until uh, the 31st of December 2020. And the thing is, this is really a hollow gesture because... Who, what country in their right mind would sign a free trade deal with the UK before they know what the specifics of their post-Brexit relationship with Europe are? I mean, you'd be foolish to sign an agreement before then. So, you know, they're, they're saying, OK, UK, you can start negotiating. But really, those negotiations can't take place until Washington, Beijing, Tokyo, until they know what the situation is going to be after Brexit. So this is yeah, a pretty I mean, bad deal.
1: Yeah, just to, just to add that, it seems like there are three problems with that, right? I mean, the first is, obviously, they're losing leverage because you're talking about a much smaller economy. So they're not going to be able to be a standard setter. They're going to be a standard taker with big players like the U.S. or China. The second is, of course, the uncertainty that you just mentioned, that everybody's going to say, well, what is the story? You know, we don't know where things are going to stand when the, when the total negotiations shake out. And the third is that they're always going to have the EU looking over their shoulder. So, if they see something happening in live negotiations with the US, for example, regarding the financial services sector, the EU is going to immediately say, you know, how is that going to impact our our financial services market? And how do we need to adjust accordingly within our? simultaneously have negotiations to make sure that that doesn't negatively impact us.
0: Yeah. That's why I think it's very unlikely that any actual negotiating is going to take place between London and, and other world capitals during this this time period. Now, the UK, you know, technically, this this is not an agreement. What, what was agreed uh, last week is not an agreement between the UK and the EU twenty seven. It's an agreement within the EU twenty seven that okay, this is the type of transition period we're okay with. The UK can still reject this. And and interestingly, uh, while Michel Barnier was giving a press conference, giving the the results. Um, of what the EU27 had decided, David Davis was briefing the UK Parliament, basically saying the opposite of what had just taken place. So he says, oh, well, it's still unclear whether we would have to adopt new EU laws, and it's still unclear whether or not we would have the voting power. No, it was very clear. I mean, what, was, what was adopted by the EU27 was very clear. Um, what may not be clear is if the UK... Will accept it. But of course, what choice do they have? They need that extra time. They can't fall off the cliff edge in March 2019. So, I mean, it's a take it or leave it situation and they can't leave it. So, as bad of a deal as this is, they have to accept it. It's a kind of extraordinary position for them to be in
1: so how is how is the it playing out in the uh, the Boulevard press? because obviously that plays a big role in these brexit negotiations in the u k itself.
0: so I, what's been interesting to me is as objectively bad as this deal is, I didn't see a big kickback from the Daily Mail, from the Sun, from the Telegraph, um, as you might expect. And this has happened a couple times during the Brexit process where you can see something really bad just happened. Like the EU is mm. screwing over the UK in some way, and the right-wing press right. pulls its punches. And I've heard the another podcast about EU politics, Romaniacs. Their general theory on this is Ian Dunt from politics.co.uk. His theory is that this is all very much in collusion Between the right wing press and the government. And when they see that there's a battle that cannot be won, right, like they can see that this transition period deal is all they can get, then they try not to highlight it because doing so could uh, damage the government. Now, in this case, there's been speculation about. Over the past week, there's been speculation about Theresa May's position. She's on a trip to China, right. and while she was right. away, there seemed to be a lot of plotting going on back home in Westminster. But it's it's not yeah. necessarily in reaction to this transition deal. It seems to be kind of about larger forces. So it's, it's hard to read that because it seems like every other week there's, you know, a, a Speculation about Theresa May's position—it's hard to know when that uh, that the, that actually you know this kind of like the boy who cried wolf, and I don't know when the wolf is really there for Theresa May. Um, but you know, I think the this this is not good for her, what what was adopted last week.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I, it's interesting that they would play it that way because I wouldn't assign a kind of this. You hear this a little bit when you talk to Brits here in Berlin as well. You know, oh. Well, the, the the German government is not making a big deal or it's acting like it's indifferent to UK departure or is not making this a big topic as a strategic decision. And I don't actually think that's the case. I mean, I think people have really moved on. They are enraptured by Trump. They're enraptured by Erdogan. They're obviously consumed by their own issues, financial, you know, the, uh, Macron's offer for a, a Eurozone uh, a hardening of the Eurozone, the issues with refugees, etc. cetera. Uh, the U.K. is just uh, very 2016 to be <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little bit flippant about it. And and you see that in the fact that, for example, the media just doesn't cover it in, in Germany. Yeah. And it's not because Merkel or the Chancellor gave out marching orders not to cover it. It's just the way it is. And I think that's similar in, in the U.K. itself. It just seems like if it doesn't make for a good headline, despite the fact that the U.K. is being a little bit, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, screwed by the situation, um, it doesn't pitch well as a story, so it's harder to sell. So when that happens, they just let it go.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the Brexit subject as a whole still eats up a lot of ink in the U.K., um, and it's still, oh, of course. I mean, people are no, obviously tired UK of it, but, huge, still, but yeah, yeah. It's like the it's main news centric
1: story. vision that everybody's talking about Brexit when yes, everybody else is they're not.
0: On. And it's as a news consumer in the UK, you can see how, why someone might have that impression when you pick up the paper every day and the paper is leading on Brexit. You think, well, the other side must be talking about this just as much, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not just in Germany, everywhere here in Belgium, um, in France, this is just not a, big item of interest for people. Now, that I think right. is going to change as we get closer to D-Day and, you know, that the obviously a cliff edge Brexit is excru- excruciatingly bad for the UK but would also be bad for continental Europe. And so um, the the disinterest in the subject at this current moment that could change in, in just a short amount of time.
1: What do you think Barnier's name recognition is in the UK?
0: A pretty high, I'd say, actually. He is uh, very frequently vilified in the right-wing press. Um, I would guess mm, 40% name recognition among the public, which I think is pretty high for an EU official. I think Juncker would have more name recognition. Um, so I can,
1: I can tell you here in Berlin and in Germany writ large, his name recognition is a rounding error. I mean, I don't think anybody knows who he is.
0: It's interesting. I yeah, I guess when I guess the yeah, it's just because of the lack of coverage of Brexit stuff. Why why would a German newsreader have heard his name actually?
1: Right, exactly.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, going forward, the new round of talks has been scheduled uh, for uh, this upcoming week. And now, I mean, things are, things were frozen for a bit since December. And now with the transition period agreed with the EU 27, having said the UK has made sufficient progress to start the the talks about phase two, um, we are now slowly going ahead again after some months of, of nothing. Um, but it's still, it's, it's going to be a long, hard slog. And Barney was very keen to stress at his press conference last week that although sufficient progress has been deemed to be made, that does not mean that phase one is concluded. It's not even near being concluded. So really the the talks are still going to be focused on how exactly the UK leaves the EU before any talks can start on what that post-Brexit relationship will look like.
1: Interesting. So what are the the sticking points that we should be watching now, i.e., you know, this week, this month, in the in the spring, early spring.
0: Um, obviously, citizens' rights has not been settled, so it, there's been some, a little bit of agreement on that, but it's still not quite clear. Um, for instance, if you're an EU citizen and you move to the UK during this transition period at any point between now and 2020, can you stay after Brexit? That's unclear. Still pretty unclear what is going to happen to UK citizens who live in continental Europe who have not lived in their specific countries long enough to have permanent residence um so that the citizens rights issue is still up in the air the ecj jurisdiction issue uh is very much up in the air obviously the irish border question that is like the thorniest issue i think in brexit talks because it it comes down to the the big question are they going to be in the customs union or not so there's there's a lot of a lot of things left to be left to be discussed
1: well, I obviously this will be the gift that keeps on giving. We will definitely talk about this again soon.
0: Yeah, but in the um, meantime, let's move on to German coalition formation. Yeah. Okay, so let's dive into Germany coalition formation. So, like we said at the top of the podcast, I feel like we've been talking about this forever, and it's still going on. Obviously, this is going on a lot yeah. longer than anyone expected. Tyson, what's the latest happening over there in Berlin?
1: So, yeah, essentially, we're coming to the end of the the end of the beginning, or the beginning of the end, depending on where you stand and what you think of Merkel's government. Um, essentially. Uh, We are in the middle of the formal coalition talks. Uh, The SPD and the CDU, Merkel's party, have agreed to open coalition talks about a week, a little, almost two weeks ago. Uh, It was by a very slim uh, majority of party uh, functionaries in the SPD. The SPD, the center-left party here in Germany, is very much against the idea of forming another grand coalition. They believe that. Merkel, kind of like uh, the big boss in Mortal Kombat 2, kind of sucks the life out of the party (laughs) and has essentially left it a shell, even though they are able to get the policy issues that they want, be it something on, um, you know, in increased minimum wage or social safety net. Uh, They don't get the credit or, or gay marriage. A lot of issues have been passed under the Merkel era. But they don't get the credit that they think that they deserve. And as a result, the party is on the verge of collapsing into a kind of a niche status, losing its, its status as what they call a Volkspartei, or basically one of the big parties that represents a big center-left swath of the German population. So they're in the middle of negotiations right now. It's in the nitty-gritty. Essentially, the SPD base, in its gut— does not want to be in a coalition with Merkel. Um, The party vote in bond of the top party functionaries from the different states um, only passed the idea of opening coalition negotiations by 56%. Um, that in contrast to the when they opened negotiations for the last grand coalition in 2013, which was over 70 percent. So back then they said, you know, we have some policy issues that we really want to force through, and this is the best vehicle to do it. Now they're just sick of governance. I mean, the SPD, as we talk about on this podcast, has been in government more than any other party 16 years the past 20 years. Um, so it's been the longest party in governance, and they want some time in opposition to rebuild, heal, uh, redefine their party identity. So there are two areas of the SPD that are really fighting against this coalition. One is the what they call the usos, which is basically everybody in the party under 30. They say we need to redefine ourselves, we need to reinvent ourselves. The old Hanover crew of Gerhard Schröder, of um uh Sigmar Gabriel of Steinmeier, the people who have been around since 1998, no longer reflect our values, and we need to be able to take the reins of the party. And is that because they they're, too, they're, are, they're
0: too to the right for these youth people?
1: Uh, the youth the people are, are slightly more to the left ideologically, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's necessarily an ideological matter. It's more of an institutional matter. Mm-hmm. They're trying to say, you know, you guys have basically been around too long. And you've been in control too long, and and it's time to give the next generation a chance to to be in charge of this party and define it. The second is, of course, and this happens on the CDU as well, um, a lot of dissatisfaction among those who are really doing the work on, on the parties in general. I mean, there was a lot of dissatisfaction, disillusionment with Martin Schulz, who, by all indications, was probably the best candidate that they had he came outside, of the party system, came back into Germany, was an insider-outsider, if you will, was not burdened by the bad decisions or what was considered the bad decisions of past grand coalitions, but he has been eaten away by the party apparatus, uh, the, the top party functionaries, and so everybody in the party who are you know, the base voters are kind of sick of Martin Schultz, they're sick of the party as an institution, They want to try to make sure that they have control and agency. So the big question is whether or not whatever a grand coalition deal is could pass the party base. I mean, it's kind of like what we see in the United States or in uh, the Labour Party in the UK. You know, people are sick of the establishment a little bit. And they want to vent that a little bit through the democratic process. Whenever a coalition agreement comes to pass, and it will either happen this Sunday or the following Tuesday, this Tuesday, um, uh, February 6th, then after that, the top brass needs to make the case to the base, this is the best deal that they can get, um, and the base is in a very anti-establishment mood. The only person within the party right now who could probably make that case convincingly, and it would be a miracle, if they were able, she was able to do that lift, is Andrea Nollis, the former labor minister, who is very close to the party base, who's very respected in the party base, um, and she might be able to do that lift. But if you look at the issues, you know, just today, there was a conclusion that there was going to be a um, continuation of deferred uh, family reunification on refugees into midsummer. There's going to be limits on the number of refugees that can be come to to Germany, a big win for the CSU. There's going to be a limit on family uh, reunification to 1,000 a month, again, a big win for the CSU. Um, Kevin Kunat, uh, who is the leader of USOS, heavily attacking the government. Um, the next generation of rising stars, uh, Manu Dreyer, the uh, minister-president from Reinhard pfalz the mayor of Berlin, both kind of distancing themselves from these negotiations. It's looking not great. The momentum is not there for this grand coalition right now.
0: Do you think it's a possibility that these talks collapse?
1: I don't think so. I think that the, the party leaderships on both sides are committed to making sure that there's a conclusion. The question is whether or not the SPD can make sure that they get something Really dramatic that they're able to sell to their party base, and some of the issues that are really that really matter to the base are treatment in the insurance system, um, equal treatment for private and public insurance holders uh, in the healthcare system. That seems uh, pretty unlikely. Um, e- there are some issues on Europe that are, matter to people like Martin Schulz and the elites, but they don't really matter to the base doesn't seem clear right now what they could get that would make it an easy sell. I mean, just as a kind of very basic optical matter, if Merkel left power and the SPD was able to get the chancellery, that might be sellable, but that seems highly unlikely.
0: Now, what about the AFD I mean assuming that this grand coalition goes forward that means the AFD will become the official opposition party and get some uh, some status based on that. Um, in the meantime these people have taken their seats right I mean they're there in the Parliament has there been any right. indication so far on how they will behave as the official opposition party based on what they've done the past couple of months?
1: So all of the parties have already settled in under the assumption that a grand coalition will come to pass. And so committee chairmanships have already been assigned. The AFD has gotten the traditional top opposition party committee chairmanship, which is the committee chair of the budget. And that did end up going to AFD. They also got uh, tourism and justice. So... In a traditional fashion, they have been treated like a traditional party, and that is seen as a sign that, you know, political process and institutions and norms are going to trump the idea of just excluding the AFD as a pariah party. Um, And that is the other side of the argument, you know, even though the SPD base is so against the idea of a grand coalition, many will argue here in Berlin and outside of Berlin that The SPD remains scarred by the fractionalization that happened in the early 30s when it was actually the largest party in Germany, but unable to form party uh, uh, coalitions because of its ideological purity. And that led to the rise of, obviously, extremist parties, the Nazi party, which took control. Mm. So there is a sense of duty almost That they need to create stability, and that's the kind of counter argument. Even though in their gut, the SPD does not want to be in another government with the CDU.
0: So, in the end, will the assuming that this coalition, the grand coalition, gets formed again, is it really just going to be the same as what we had in the last term?
1: Um, Honestly, it's looking pretty similar. I, I would even it's it's pretty. Uh, uninspiring. I mean, when you talk to people here, they talk about the joylessness of these negotiations. They talk about a forced marriage or a loveless marriage. Um, you know, if you look at the party platform, you know, little pieces of it are leaking out. We have 18 working groups. We have 90 negotiators. Already chapters are starting to come out and they look just exactly the same as the current policy. Anytime you look at the wording, it's like, strengthen this, you know, what we're doing already. Amp up that. But the the changes are not really um, noticeable. Um, Even when you talk to people about ministries, you know, talking to people like about the defense ministry or the foreign ministry. You know, the people occupying those positions right now, Gabriel, von der Leyen, basically fighting to keep those exact same ministries. So it's it's really hard to see any major change right now. The incumbency is really setting in, and that is not consistent with the mood in Germany right now.
0: Hmm. I mean, I know from, from the perspective here in Brussels, I think that people have, well... People are kind of like, wake me when they come to an agreement. People aren't, people aren't following this in great detail. But they're still right. a little bit anxious until this gets resolved. Obviously, this is an unusual situation um, for Germany to have a, a little bit of a lack of stability in the government formation process. And people, it makes people anxious. So I know people here... Even if they're not um, super excited about another grand coalition, even if it's not sexy, uh, and even if it feels like a loveless marriage, it's somebody else's loveless marriage, and it's at least it's the it's keep it's the neighbors that are in a loveless marriage, but will be more will add stability to the neighborhood they, by they, staying together. They, they
1: keep cutting the grass.
0: Yeah, exactly. And people don't. People are afraid. What happens in Germany if the grass doesn't get cut? Um,
1: yeah. I mean, it's, it, just, to, just to reflect that back, I mean, I think that the likelihood, and everybody will tell you this, that Germany has new elections has never been higher. And the other thing, and this is where we really go off the Rubicon, the likelihood that the two Volkspartei in the traditional post-Second World War parties could even get 50 percent has never been lower. Um, we are going into really uncharted territory. And whatever happens with these negotiations, um, the, the idea that Merkel, the, you know, the island of stability, the so-called leader of the free world, would remain in her position has never been more tenuous. Um, so I think in the next six weeks, are going to be critical for Merkel and critical for Germany to see exactly which direction it heads, but its future has never been less certain.
0: Well, we will see what happens. So that'll do it for this edition of the Brussels to Berlin podcast, coming at you from Brussels and Berlin. Now we're doing this remote thing, which uh, obviously the audio quality is not as good as when we're together in person, but I think it adds a little fun dynamic when we're, we're, we're both entrenched in our little worlds.
1: Embedded. Embedded, embedded,
0: yeah. Uh, So we hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. If you like us, please rate and review us on the Apple Store. It pushes us up so other people can find us and enjoy us just as much as you guys have. I'm assuming if you've made it to this point, (laughs) to the end of the podcast. Uh, So thanks. You are a true believer. Yes, we we cherish your your fandom. Uh, So uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.